This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500 500. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, some of those grounded Boeing jets are back, but. The 737 MAX has a stained reputation as an aircraft. Nikki Haley says she'll keep fighting former President Trump for the 2024 nomination. She's not rude, she's to the point. I like Trump, I think he can fix all our problems. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, the case of Brittany Watts, the black Ohio woman criminalized after a miscarriage. We hope and pray that her story is an impetus to change. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. Some Boeing 737 MAX 9s are back in the air. They were grounded in the wake of that door panel blowout earlier this month, and the FAA says the aircraft are safe after inspections. CBS's Chris Van Cleve joins us. United and Alaska have gotten the green light to do uh, these inspections on the door panel that's similar to the one that blew out on that flight. Uh, Those inspections are underway. And as planes uh, go through that process and that inspection is completed, they're able to go back into service. So uh, Alaska and United expect that they'll have MAX 9s flying today. United says scheduled MAX 9 service will start on Sunday, but they expect to have planes available today to act as spares. Alaska is planning to have them in the air today as well. The CEOs of their biggest customers have been, well, really angry about this. Yeah, look, Alaska says this grounding, almost three-week-long grounding, will cost them at least $150 million. Uh, That is a lot of money for the nation's fifth-largest carrier. It's a lot of money for any business to to lose. Uh, American Airlines CEO, they also fly the MAX 8, uh, has said Boeing needs to get their stuff together. Uh, He's frustrated. Uh, Both United Airlines and Southwest Airlines, uh, while not canceling orders by any means, they both said that they don't believe Boeing's going to make their delivery schedules, and they have removed some of their future MAX airplanes from their long-term planning. Basically, 
they, they hope to get them one day, but they don't know when they'll show up. So they can't bank on them as they plan the airline's growth in the year or two ahead. Uh, so these are not votes of confidence for Boeing, uh, even though everyone you talk to in the airline business seems to think that uh, the airplanes are safe. The the level of frustration and concern around Boeing's process is growing. I know that you have been at airports and covering this. What are passengers saying? Because people I know are going, okay, do I need to change my flight if it's on a Boeing or what? You know, I think that there's, obviously there are people that are going to be reticent about getting on a 737 MAX 9. Uh, We saw that after the initial grounding of the MAX fleet. And then uh, a few months later, that concern sort of vanished as the plane operated as it should. Uh, we just spoke, in fact, with airline industry Henry Hart, Henry, airline industry analyst Henry Hartevelt, and uh, Henry tracks things like consumer sentiment very closely. And he he was expecting that uh, you know, in as little as a month, some of these concerns that people have today will start to to fade to the background if the airplane operates as it's supposed to. But this is a plane that has a black mark against it. It it has, uh, you know, it has a history, and everybody knows it has a history. And um, that is something that Boeing and the airlines are going to have to address. And you know, he, Henry certainly believes that Boeing needs to be more proactive in talking not to their customers, the airlines, but to those of us who fly on their airplanes to talk to them about safety and the changes they're making and what they're doing to ensure that their planes are built correctly. One of the things I've been saying, and I've been asking people at Boeing and the FAA and the NTSB pretty consistently, if in fact this comes down to bolts that weren't installed properly or perhaps not installed at all, if you can't trust Boeing and or its suppliers to install bolts that hold a door in place, how do you trust them to do anything else right in the build process? And how do you trust the regulator to catch them if something's going wrong. And those are questions that I think still need to be answered in a way that the public can understand. I certainly have questions about Boeing's manufacturing process. I think uh, the the FAA has questions about it. The NTSB does, uh, Congress does. Uh, I've continued to fly on Boeing products. I've been on several 737 MAX 8s while the MAX 9 has been grounded. Uh, I anticipate being on a MAX 9. Uh, at some point in the next couple of weeks, because I fly a lot. Uh, I am not losing sleep over getting on the airplanes. Um, and the, the reason I say that is not so much because Boeing tells me the plane is safe, um, because they've got a credibility problem right now. But I do trust that the airlines don't want to be in a situation where they're dealing with a loss of life event. And more so, I trust that the pilots aren't going to sign up to fly an airplane they think is unsafe to fly because they all want to go home at the end of the day, too. CBS's Chris Van Cleve. Former President Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary Tuesday in the race for the 2024 Republican nomination, but Nikki Haley says she isn't going anywhere. CBS's Caitlin Huey Burns. Bring it, Donald. Show me what you got. As pressure mounts for Nikki Haley to drop out of the race, the former South Carolina governor is taking the fight to her opponent. He didn't talk about the American people once. He talked about revenge. And Trump is stepping up his attacks on his former U.N. ambassador. After Haley announced a surge in donations, Trump took to social media Wednesday, warning Haley donors 
anybody that makes a contribution to her campaign from this moment forth will be permanently barred from the MAGA camp. Trump, he's such a bully. In Haley's home state, we found some Republican voters encouraging her to stick it out. Shauna King voted for Trump twice, but is now backing Haley. She's not name-calling, she's not rude, she's to the point, she's honest, she's a fighter. Do you just want her to stay in this until she, the last possible minute? I do, because Trump is going to try and force her out, he's going to try and intimidate, make her look bad, stay in it, you know. For but others, like Lauren sure. Poe, are undecided. I like Trump, I think he can fix all our problems, but I don't want the chaos of the Trump-Biden thing, so... I do like Nikki, but I really don't know which way I'm going to go. The nation has lost another civil rights lion. George Sally has died in Selma, Alabama at the age of 94. He was considered the oldest living so-called foot soldier of the Selma voting rights movement. He was among the group of peaceful marchers. State troopers attacked at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma on Bloody Sunday in 1965. Selma Mayor James Perkins Jr. Mr. Sally will be long remembered for his contributions to the voting rights movement and the effort. And he served until death. He never Stopped. Sally joined Presidents Obama and Biden as they joined in the annual reenactment of the event, including with Mr. Biden last year. Jim Crisula, CBS News. Coming up, the economy. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. There's good news now for those worried about a possible recession. The economy has remained resilient. A new report shows the U.S. economy expanded more than expected in the fourth quarter of 2023. Gross domestic product, or GDP, increased at an annualized pace of 3.3%, down from the third quarter, but better than the first half of the year. Of course, the health of the economy is determined by more than just one number. Mortgage rates are slowly dropping from last year's highs, but are still well above pre-pandemic levels. I got into a condo in uh, 2018, so I'm locked in at a 2.87 rate. The inflation rate has receded from 2022 highs. Prices at grocery stores and gas stations are down, but eating out and rents continue to climb at a strong pace. And even though employment has remained solid, we've recently seen a number of tech and media companies announce layoffs. Many Americans have mixed responses to the mixed results. Even if you make a decent income, it's very difficult. I think the economy is doing well. For me personally, yeah, it's going well. I would say mediocre at best. Right now, the Federal Reserve is rooting for mediocre, so spending slows and inflation falls further. Until then, the central bank is unlikely to take any action on rates when they meet at the end of the month. 
in New York. I'm CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. In Washington, D.C., a bipartisan group of senators is trying to save a very fragile deal to overhaul the nation's immigration laws and get more funding to Ukraine. But CBS's Scott McFarland reports there are worries that former President Trump is trying to nix the whole thing to help win an election. A month-long negotiation to bolster the U.S. border is on life support. In a closed-door meeting, Republican leader Mitch McConnell warned Donald Trump might want to make immigration a campaign issue, threatening GOP support for any deal. One day, one, I will seal the border and I will shut down the invasion of our country. It's an invasion. The idea that, that someone running for president would say, please hurt the country so I can blame my opponent and help my politics is a... Uh, Uh, a shocking uh, uh, development. Senators are trying to save their effort to overhaul immigration law, which would also pump tens of billions of dollars into Ukraine for its war against Russia. We are negotiating in good faith and want to get this done in a bipartisan way. Will Trump have the ability to kill this immigration deal? Well, I think there's not a deal to be killed yet. South Carolina's Lindsey Graham says he's urging Trump to get behind the border negotiations, which he says are ongoing. I will say to President Trump, if we can put this package together, you'll have more tools to secure America than you've ever had. Among proposals being discussed, making it easier to expel migrants when border crossings spike and raising the requirements to claim asylum in the U.S. Hanging in the balance, emergency money to help Ukraine replenish its weapons and equipment, as the Biden administration says the Pentagon has run out of money for Ukraine. We have the Ukrainian aid. It's it's vulgar and evil that, that anyone would turn our backs now on, on Ukraine right now. But that's also facing resistance from some Trump allies. Is there a risk the Ukraine money falls apart too? That the Ukraine component also gets killed? Oh, here? I hope so, because I don't, I don't like that either. Scott McFarland. CBS News, the Capitol. Now to a first-of-its-kind execution in Alabama Thursday. Convicted killer Kenneth Smith was put to death using nitrogen gas. It's a method that had never been used in an execution or tested. Some witnesses say his death was inhumane, and we warn you, some of the details are disturbing. CBS's Lilia Luciano. Our son was crying every time he just watched his father take his last gasp for air. Deanna Smith broke down in tears as she described watching the execution of her husband, Kenneth Eugene Smith. The 58-year-old was pronounced dead at 8.25 p.m. Thursday, 22 minutes after he started breathing in nitrogen gas through a face mask, depriving him of oxygen. He began shaking and writhing, but he was tied very tightly down. Lauren Layton, with her CBS News affiliate in Huntsville, Alabama, was one of five reporters who witnessed the execution. They say Smith appeared conscious for several minutes. Then, for at least two minutes, he appeared to shake and writhe in the gurney, at times pulling against the restraints. Following that, they say his breath slowed until it was no longer perceptible. He struggled against his restraints a little bit, but there's some involuntary movement and some agonal breathing, so uh, that was all expected. So nothing was out of the ordinary. We didn't see somebody go unconscious in 30 seconds. What we saw was minutes of someone struggling for their life. Reverend Jeff Hood was in the execution chamber with Smith. He says Smith was not unconscious in seconds like the state predicted. We saw minutes of someone heaving back and forth. We saw spit. We saw all sorts of stuff from his mouth develop on the mask. 
Smith was sentenced to death for his role in the 1988 murder for hire of Elizabeth Dorlene Sennett. The state tried to execute him through lethal injection in 2022, but repeatedly failed to find a vein. His lawyers tried to stop Thursday's execution, calling it cruel and unusual punishment, but the Supreme Court rejected their last-ditch effort. Nothing happened here that's going to bring mom back. We're not going to be jumping around hooping and hollering, but uh, we're glad this day is over. Alabama's governor said, quote, the execution was lawfully carried out by nitrogen hypoxia, the method previously requested by Mr. Smith as an alternative to the lethal injection. Mr. Smith got what he asked for, and this case can finally be put to rest. The growing transition away from fossil fuels means much more than electric vehicles. What's driving the push to electrification? Jennifer Scanlon, president and CEO of UL Solutions. What really is trying to combat the effects of climate change. Amir Paul, CEO and president of Schneider Electric North America, also says the biggest driver is an efficient form of energy. And when we electrify everything, that is the fastest path to make sure we stay below the one and a half degrees in the Paris Accords from a climate perspective. It's also something where the technology that we now have available allows us to go much faster. But Scanlon of UL Solutions says consumer bringing even more electric items into their lives have to keep in mind safety, whether it's turning to a heat pump, an electric cooker, hoverboard, e-scooters, or e-bikes. All of those are powered by a lithium-ion battery, which can have tremendous dangers. The fire spreads faster, it burns faster, it's a different set of materials. So consumers should look that those products have been certified to have passed certain UL standards. Commonwealth Edison CEO Gil Quinones says the grid is the enabler for electrification. And our projection is that we are going to need to double our grid, maybe double or triple the size of our grid to meet the future demands of electrification. He says the money for this comes from the federal and state governments and the utility. Quinones says ComEd's challenge is to stay ahead of the demand. To make sure that we keep the grid reliable and resilient, especially with the increasing impacts of climate change to our weather. Jennifer Kuyper, CBS News, Chicago. Coming up, marking International Holocaust Remembrance Day. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. The International Court of Justice rules that Israel must take measures to prevent genocide in Gaza and that it also must allow humanitarian aid into the area. The court says the situation there is at serious risk of deteriorating further. The case was brought against Israel by South Africa, who accused that nation of violating the U.N. Genocide Convention. CBS's Deborah Pata. While the ICJ did not order a ceasefire, it said it would not throw out the genocide case, ruling that the Palestinians appeared to be a protected group under the 1948 Genocide Convention. It did not decide, as we keep pointing out, on the merits of the genocide allegations, but Israel must submit a report in about a month's time outlining the measures it has taken to give effect to the court's orders. The world marks Holocaust Remembrance Day on Saturday, as many in Israel are comparing the Hamas massacre of October 7th to the genocide that took place as millions of Jews were murdered. Tzvi Salo was a five-year-old child in Warsaw when World War II began. His family escaped, and in 1959, he and his wife moved to Kibbutz Nirim on the border with Gaza. Many years later came October 7th, when Hamas gunmen killed 1,200 Israelis and took 240 hostage. 
We woke up at 6.30 in the morning because we were shooting outside and we heard, we heard people speaking, screaming in Arabic running in between the houses. So we locked the door and we, and we waited till the army relieves us, but it took them seven hours. Tzvi says he wasn't thinking about the Holocaust during the seven hours he hid in the safe room with his partner Osnat. His next-door neighbor and her son were kidnapped and taken to Gaza. Oh, I was thinking how to hold the door that won't come in. It was very practical. And, and when will the army come? And why, have, why, why aren't they here yet? Holocaust historian Robert Rosette says that the events of October 7th remind many of the Holocaust. There were things that happened on the 7th of October, like people being locked in safe rooms for a long time, which reminded people very much of what was happening in ghettos during roundups during the period of the Holocaust. At the same time, he said, the scale of the Holocaust, which killed 12 million people, including 6 million Jews, is, of course, much larger than October 7th. In addition, he says, Hamas sees the conflict with Israel as a religious nationalist conflict, while the Nazis saw themselves as a superior race and wanted to annihilate the Jewish people. Linda Gradstein for CBS News, Kibbutz Negba. Now to the situation in Ukraine as the U.N. Security Council meets on the downing of a Russian transport plane and on the nuclear threats posed by the Kremlin's occupation of a power plant. All this as Ukrainian aid from the U.S. and U.K. is being held up. Almost two years since Russia invaded Ukraine, the U.N. says that bombings of civilians have increased dramatically and that the situation on the ground is dire. The U.N. said that the world should not forget about Ukraine's suffering, which has displaced 10 million Ukrainians. U.S. Deputy Ambassador Robert Wood told the council that the Kremlin bears ultimate responsibility for starting and continuing this war. Russia has repeatedly attempted to shift responsibility for the tragedies of this senseless war of choice as though it is the victim and not the aggressor. Ukraine has called for an international investigation of the crash of a military aircraft in Belgrade near the Ukraine border that Russia claims was carrying Ukrainian prisoners of war to be exchanged with Russians. The U.S. said that Russia's calling for an emergency meeting when the facts are not known was part of a familiar playbook. Ukraine's deputy ambassador, Kristina Hayawishin, said that Russia's military did not allow emergency workers to inspect the crash site and all the details of the crash are being investigated. At the same time, if the information that there were Ukrainian prisoners of war on board is confirmed, we will have another confirmation of cross violation of international humanitarian law by Russia, and the first case of Russia using a human shield in the air to cover the transportation of missiles for their further use against peaceful Ukrainian cities. The council also asked the UN's nuclear chief, Rafael Mariano Grossi, to give updates on the power outages last week at the largest nuclear plant in Europe, Zaporizhia, that Russia took control of two years ago, as Grossi announced that he is traveling to Kyiv and Moscow to discuss the plant which he told world leaders in a closed meeting continues to be extremely fragile and that the dangers of a major nuclear accident remain very real as he talked about the need to avoid a Chernobyl or Fukushima type of accident. And the problem is this, the complete uncertainty, because this is a war. Two years of war, the UN said, have created death and destruction, food shortages around the world, now taking a backseat to other crises. Pamela Falk, CBS News at the United Nations. There's a battle brewing over tea and what you put in it. Trouble is brewing over the best brew. Well, the secret ingredient that set off all the um, furor was salt. 
The tussle over tea started when U.S. scientist Michelle Frankel made the salty suggestion. And that you could add a pinch of salt to remove some of the bitterness from tea. But it's leaving a bitter taste in Britain. Ew. <laughs> yeah, that just sounds weird. Rubbish. <laughs> Frankel's proper pot, outlined in her new book, is steeped in science. There's recent research that shows that the sodium ions, they block the bitter receptors. So you can sort of tell your tongue not to taste the bitter. The tempest in a teapot triggered a diplomatic dispute. The U.S. Embassy in London tweeted, The unthinkable notion of adding salt to Britain's national drink is not official U.S. policy. But cheekily added, tea is made in a microwave, not a kettle, rubbing salt in an old wound to show how to make a real cup of tea. You don't need a microwave to make a cup of tea. All you need is a naked flame, tea bag, sugar. Frankel knows the battle between tradition and science is causing quite a stir, but she's pouring it on. You know, if you want a taste of tea that's a little less bitter, try that pinch of salt. A storm in a teacup that'll keep boiling across the Atlantic. Ian Lee, CBS News, London. An upset at the Australian Open. A shock exit in a tough semi-final for Djokovic. The world number one up against fourth-seed Italian Yannick Sinner, who won 6-1, 6-2, 6-7, 6-3 in three hours, 20 minutes. The confidence from, from end of last year has for sure kept the belief that I can that I can play against the best players in the world. Sinner on Nine Media, who makes his way to this weekend's final while Novak Djokovic packs his bags home. Scott Maiman for CBS News, Canberra, Australia. Worries over the upcoming Women's Tennis Association Tour. Two Hall of Famers are urging it to stay out of Saudi Arabia. Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova say that would be a significant regression. Despite recent reforms, women in Saudi Arabia are still subject to wider legal and social restrictions than men, and women's rights activists say they face arbitrary arrest and detention, torture and travel bans. Elaine Cobb, CBS News. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, the story of a woman criminalized over a miscarriage. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, where every week we discuss issues including race. This time we're talking about the case of Brittany Watts. She's the black Ohio woman charged with a felony after having a miscarriage at home. Watts ultimately was not indicted, but her case raises huge questions about health care, policing, and the risk of women in similar circumstances after Roe v. Wade was overturned. We warn you, some of what you're about to hear is very graphic. Her attorney, Tracy Timko, joined us to discuss it and how Watts reacted when she learned she was no longer facing prison. 
I call her. We had no advance notice that that's what was going to happen. So as soon as I find out, I call her. She answers the phone. And I said, no, Bill. And there was this moment of she was completely silent and then this shriek and it immediately made me cry it was so emotional you could just feel all this relief of emotion from her like you could just feel her the way she's described it since then is it felt like the weight of the world was lifted in that moment and I've said, and I could hear it happening in just that silence followed by that shriek. Tracy, I've got to ask you briefly, for people that somehow have not seen the coverage of this, what actually happened? She was pregnant. She went to a hospital because she was bleeding. And then unfortunate things happened there, right? Can you describe what, what happened? She went three times, right? Sure. Yes, she did. So she was uh, about 20 weeks pregnant. Uh, They actually determined ultimately 21 weeks, five days to be exact. But she goes to her doctor. She believed she had miscarried. She was bleeding heavily, uh, passing large clots. She thought she miscarried. She gets to her doctor's office and the doctor says, you haven't miscarried yet, but it's inevitable you're going to. She tells Brittany that the fetus is not viable, that there was a premature rupture of her membranes, and that she believed that she had a partial placental abruption and that they needed to induce, that the doctor was recommending that they induce delivery uh, for Brittany's well-being, uh, but that Brittany needed to understand that the fetus was not viable and wouldn't survive. She was there, she got there around 11 a.m., around 5 p.m. She tells them uh, that she is going to leave the hospital. She said, you're not doing anything for me. She was very anxious, alienated, very upset uh, that nothing was happening. They told her that they were working on it, tried to convince her to stay. She's there another two hours and it's 7 p.m. out of frustration, anger, fear, uh, anxiety. She signs herself out against medical advice and goes home. She said at that point, I knew that the outcome was that I wasn't going to have my baby. My baby was going to die and they're not doing anything for me. So she goes home. She continues to bleed. That concerns her. The following day, she goes back to the hospital saying, I, I do need to be here. She's there for quite some time. Still, she isn't being treated in any way. She again gets upset at the lack of treatment. Uh, She also felt that they were, in her words, judging her. um, And she leaves the hospital again. Then the third day happens. Third day happens. She goes into full-blown labor at home. Uh, She is having serious cramping, lots of uh, pain. She goes into the bathroom. She believes that she has to have a bowel movement and she ends up miscarrying into the toilet at home. 
when she miscarries, she is distraught. She is terrified. She's in pain. And there's a mess. There's blood everywhere. She is trying to figure out how to clean it up, what she needs to do. She gets into the shower attempting to clean herself up. She's not able to see anything in the toilet because it was filled to the brim with um, all of the things that accompany a delivery. So she doesn't see anything specific in the toilet, but a toilet full of blood and tissue and, you know, just a mess. She attempts to flush the toilet. The toilet does not flush. It backs up. She gets a bucket to take some of the water and things that are in the toilet out of the toilet with the bucket. She puts that bucket outside, continues to try to clean up, not to a whole lot of avail. She leaves to, uh, she changes clothes a few times. She puts on four Depends that were at her house and she goes to a previously scheduled appointment. And when she gets there, the woman there tells her she looks awful, asks her if she feels okay. She says she's bleeding heavily. And then she goes to the hospital. Wow. Once she gets to the hospital, the nurse there Brittany uh, tells, says that the nurse is rubbing her shoulder, telling her everything's going to be okay. And the nurse calls 911 and reports that she's got a mother there who miscarried at home and came in without the fetus, and she's asking for the police to respond. What on earth was going through her mind at that point? She's just gone through this horrible traumatic thing. Yeah, she was, she was terrified. She was, what the nurse told her, and this is in her medical records, uh, they said, you're not in any trouble. We're sending the police over there. When they asked her if, if she brought the fetus with her and she said she didn't, they said, we're sending the police over there because it's a biohazard. And Brittany took it to be that and didn't think much more of it. Well, then there's a detective standing next to her bedside uh, questioning her. And she says, and the detective told her she wasn't in any trouble. And she recounts the events in full detail uh, again for him. At the same time, she had her cell phone and she has uh, cameras, home cameras, security cameras, that, and it dings to her phone. So she hears her phone dinging. She looks at her phone and she sees uniformed police officers at her residence and can see that her mom is sitting in the garage of the house with these uniformed officers there. She was really upset at that point. Uh to, to see all of it and still she said she was so confused she had no idea why she said I didn't understand why they keep telling me I'm not in any trouble I know I didn't do anything wrong yet there's a detective standing next to me the detective and the nurse kept stepping away from her bed to go out and talk in the hallway and then 
coming back into her room. She said it was making me very uncomfortable. And then I didn't understand all of these police officers at my house. She's So she's at the hospital. The detective's there. The nurse is there. They're going back and forth out in the hall talking. And they didn't charge her then, right? They did they send her home, or did they or did they put handcuffs on her at the hospital? They so she ended up. That was a Friday. She was in the hospital. She was in the hospital until Monday. She got out of the hospital, and it was about a week later, or a little more than a week later, that the detective called her house and. Uh, her, her mom answered the phone and the detective told her mom that there was a warrant for Brittany's arrest and that he was going to come pick her up to take her to court. So her mom went in her bedroom, woke her up and said, the police are coming because there's a warrant for your arrest. They came and picked her up. They handcuffed her, put her in the police car and drove her to court. So let me ask a couple of questions. And I know that you're her, her attorney, right? First of all, yes. they, they charged her with abuse of a corpse when she had had a miscarriage. Yes. Is is a miscarriage illegal under Ohio's law? And what is abuse of a, of a corpse? And does a miscarriage fall under that? The answer is miscarriage is not illegal. And it And it does not fit abuse of a corpse. That was my issue all along with this charge. Under Ohio law, abuse of a corpse says that you cannot treat a human corpse in a way that would, quote, outrage reasonable community sensibilities. And my issues, there were two of them. Number one, fetal remains do not, are not, that's not a corpse. The problem under Ohio law is that the term corpse isn't specifically defined. But when you go to the general meaning of corpse, it's a human body. Throughout the Ohio revised code, fetal remains are defined very distinctly from a human body. Fetal remains are referred to rather than as a body, as a product of human conception. So number one, my argument was, this isn't a corpse. And number two, Attempting to flush fetal remains that were miscarried does not outrage reasonable community sensibilities. It outrages people who do not understand the reality of miscarriage. This happens all the time. In the medical world, unless there's a serious threat to mother's health, they send women home to miscarry regularly. They refer to it as expectant management. They don't send women home with body bags or little coffins or urns or expect them to have them cremated or buried. They expect them to do what they need to do. And women historically, and as a practical matter, have had to figure that out. And Miscarrying into a toilet and flushing the remains is the very 
real traumatic experience of so many women who have been in the same position. Okay, Tracy, let me let me jump in here because Brittany Watts is a black woman. And in all of the furor and discussion over this case, a lot of advocates have noted that this kind of thing affects mostly black, brown and poor women because they're more likely to call the police on such women who, according to a lot of research, are often mistreated by medical personnel in the first place. That's what's happening here. I think that's an absolute starting point. I think to say that there's one factor that put us here would ignore so many other factors. The first problem we have is this delayed treatment. And the fact that she left the hospital to begin with because the induction wasn't happening. And there's a reason behind all of that. Most likely, and understand that the hospital has not spoken out at all. All I know is what we've been able to garner from medical records thus far. So, but from the medical standpoint, there, what we now know is that they were checking with medical ethics to see if they were permitted to induce in light of the fact this fetus was not viable. Ultimately, they were given the green light to proceed, but we start with this delayed treatment and this question as to whether or not you can perform this treatment for this woman whose health and life potentially relies on it. The next issue is that when she comes back to the hospital after miscarrying at home, the nurse is asking where the fetus is or where the baby is. And I think that's where race comes into play. I find it hard to believe that I, as a white married woman, would go into the hospital and say, I just miscarried. I I don't think they would ask me where the fetus is. But they did ask her that. And when she did not have the fetus with her, they called the police and in the medical records said it was because it was a biohazard. So by calling the police on a non-criminal matter, you're weaponizing the police. And now police who have no idea what miscarriage looks like The testimony was the reason they charged it is because he felt, quote, toes in the toilet. And so that emotional response is what prompted the detective to pursue a criminal complaint. Tracy, let me let me jump in again here and ask you a question. What does this case mean for other women in the nation with the laws such a patchwork of crazy, right, since Roe v. Wade was overturned, does this put other women at risk of having to go through such a terribly traumatic thing? I think what this case does is showcase the risk that women face. Brittany is not the first woman by any means to face criminal charges for abuse of a corpse in this situation. She received national attention for it 
and the public found it to be outrageous as they should. We hope and pray that her story is an impetus to change and that hospitals and police agencies get the education, the policies, and the legislation behind them so that this doesn't happen again. You have said that a big issue behind this case is ignorance because, as you just said, the police officer doesn't know what a miscarriage looks like. Does the general yep. public know? Do do politicians know? Is this a They absolutely of- don't know. I think ignorance is the biggest issue in this case, quite honestly. They don't understand that this is what it looks like. And they don't understand that the fetal personhood debate is what lands us here. You know, I kept hearing from from people involved in this case saying, I don't know why they're saying this is a row issue. This is a miscarriage, not an abortion. I've, I've got to stop so and ask you to define fetal personhood for those who don't know what that is. Yeah, so fetal personhood is this concept of the rights of a fetus. And at what point the fetus has rights and where those rights differ from the mother's rights as a, as a person. Um, and the fetal personhood argument has been, you know, historically, it, viability has always been a line that defined fetal personhood rights. Um, sometimes we see that shifting now to the heartbeat laws and saying as soon as there's a heartbeat, there's now this personhood to protect. But when you create this fetal personhood, you really get into some gray areas that you can't untangle so easily. If a woman is four weeks pregnant and continuing a pregnancy is going to jeopardize her own life, if mom's life and fetus's life are on equal levels here, does that mean mom must die because we can't save her life? So these are the issues that you start running into once you get into these fetal personhood issues. If a woman is a marathon runner and she runs, you know, 15 miles and she's eight weeks pregnant and it causes a miscarriage, is she criminally responsible for that? We sure as heck would find that outrageous, I hope, but that's the reality of the fetal personhood issue when not carefully considered. 
Tracy, let me ask you one brief question, because we're going into a presidential election and abortion rights is a big issue. The first lady yes. has invited uh, Kate Cox from Texas, the woman who wasn't allowed to have an abortion when she when her uh, fetus had fatal abnormalities. What would you like to hear briefly from the candidates on each side about what to do about this? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the biggest problems we have is that this issue has been so politicized and that people take a stance. They think I'm an R and therefore I must believe on right to life. And there's no flexibility there or I'm a D and vice versa. And I think we have to get back to humanity. I think we have to get back to common sense. Brittany could have been any single one of us as women or our mothers, sisters, daughters, wives. It is not okay that we are letting women face death, serious physical health risks, jail over this issue. And the politicians need to make this a humanity issue, not a partisan issue. That's attorney Tracy Timko. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keys. Hey, you with the greasy burrito. Put that down. The CDC says six out of every 10 adults have at least one chronic disease. But doctors at Mass General Brigham are trying to change that with food. I'm making a harvest salad. It may look like a set of a television food show, but Lisa Taylor is a dietitian, and she's preparing healthy dishes at Mass General Brigham's new teaching kitchen. The lesson that food is medicine. It means thinking about food and nutrition in the same way that we think about medications and surgeries. Dr. Jacob Mursky, a primary care physician and medical director of the teaching kitchen, actually prescribes food to patients. They can get the ingredients at a pantry next door, then sample the dishes made in the kitchen. <laughs> food is directly related to both the development and progression of chronic diseases, but also can be used to prevent the progression and to treat chronic diseases as well. Some of these are obvious, like diabetes and heart disease. But Dr. Mursky says foods high in sugar, salt, and unhealthy fats are directly related to cancer, liver disease, stroke, and more. Anxiety and depression are also very closely related to nutrition. I love leaving like the little leaves whole. These lessons are also available even if you're not a patient through an online cooking class developed by Mass General Brigham called New Cook. Thousands of people have joined in the classes to cook along with a professional chef and learn the power of nutrition. You can really make a difference in your health outcomes, in the risk of chronic diseases by changing what you're eating, how you're looking at food, what you put on your plate. With a focus on plant-based meals and affordability. We try to prepare for a family of four for less than $20. It's a good combination for a healthy life. Dr. Malika Marshall, CBS News, Boston. All that food has got to go somewhere, and you know where that will leave you. But CBS's Michael George has the terrifying tale of what that means for the germs that will leave in unfortunate places where we all have to go. Flushing the toilet spreads viral particles all over your restroom. 
A study published in the American Journal of Infection Control shows the force of flushing spreads pathogens to floors, walls, and sinks even five feet away. And surprisingly, there was little difference even if the toilet lid was down. The good news, cleaning with a disinfectant and a brush reduced contamination by 99%. Outrage and a backlash from Oscar fans over the snubbing of the two women behind the cultural juggernaut, Barbie. CBS's Joe Lynn Kent reports that for many, it's a sad reprise of the themes in the movie. Hi, Ken. To the legion of Barbie fans. Never forget that the system is rigged, so find a way to acknowledge that, but also always be grateful. The Oscar nominations were life-imitating art. Snubbed the two women who brought Barbie to life, Greta Gerwig and lead actress Margot Robbie. You have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane, but if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. Supporting actress America Ferreira was nominated, and so was Ryan Gosling. I'm just kidding. The supporting actor said there is no movie without Gerwig and Robbie, adding they made us laugh, they broke our hearts, they pushed the culture, and they made history. Could I just meet the woman in charge, your CEO? Oh, that would be me. This is a terrible look for the Oscars because it was a movie predicated on criticizing the patriarchy. Hillary Clinton tweeted, while it can sting to win the box office but not take home the gold, your millions of fans love you. Barbie is the highest grossing film ever by a female director, earning nearly a billion and a half dollars at the box office. It did receive eight Oscar nominations, including Best Picture with Robbie listed as a producer and Gerwig nominated for Adapted Screenplay. I'm not good enough for anything. Organizers have to do some soul searching to ask themselves why they are getting results like this that are so prominent and so such bad optics. Experts have told us that Oscar voters often tend to gravitate towards drama and can be more skeptical of comedies. And there were other big names passed over this year. Greta Lee, Leonardo DiCaprio, Fantasia Barino, among others. And the Barbie snubs really struck a nerve with fans. Jolene Kent, CBS News, Washington. Finally, CBS News legend Charles Osgood died this week at the age of 91. He worked here for almost 50 years, from the Osgood file on radio to his beloved Sunday morning. Our Jane Pauley has this lovely remembrance. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. He was the admired, yet approachable host of Sunday Morning for more than 22 years. The Osgood file. This is Charles Osgood. And that reassuring voice of CBS Radio's The Osgood File for nearly 46. Charles Osgood knew his was a storied life. Born Charles Osgood Wood in the Bronx, he grew up in Baltimore. He remembered it this way. In 1942, milk was delivered in bottles. The mail was delivered twice a day. And that boy named Charlie Wood had a paper route. In the 1950s, he served three years as the Army Band's announcer. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. He had a love of music. You are only as old as you feel. Want to see what Lucille is now able to do? Playful poetry. These are one-inch pine boards. Not just one board, but two. And especially time spent chewing the fat with the likes of Julia Child. Did you imagine that you were a natural for television when you first started doing that show? I'm a natural ham with them helps a lot. 
and many others. They come out fast, but I mean, it's a fast world. We have actors and artists, not just politicians. His beloved Sunday morning was the beneficiary of his passions. Our Sunday mornings are filled with such things. We have. Reasons. I cannot think of anything that has given me more pleasure professionally than Sunday morning because, first of all, it feels great to be part of something that people love, and I know that they do. I've sung this song, but I'll sing it again. I knew I'd be leaving, but I didn't know when. He is survived by Jean, his wife of 50 years, their five children and six grandchildren, and all of us at CBS News. Been a long time. Charles Osgood was 91 years old. And I've got to be drifting along. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. The Weekend Roundup is produced at the CBS News Washington Bureau. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor and Alan Pang provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. And how long have you been the, the producer of this? We've been doing this for two years now. Okay. And and what is it like to attempt to uh, get feedback from me about the podcast? Be honest about how quickly I respond to emails. You actually respond to emails surprisingly fast. Really? I, I think you might be the only person I respond to. <laughs> <laughs> I respond to quickly. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. I expected I expected you to lay into me. Well, this was over the strike period. Oh, I had time. Yeah. So that, that, does, that doesn't count. <laughs> Sure, I responded to everything because responding to you, putting reruns up on the podcast was like a form of employment. Yeah. I felt like I had something to get up for every yeah. day. So thank you for that. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.